Um, so what percent of your blood would you say is dairy products at this time in your bloodstream? Yeah, I'm going to say on any given day, it ranges from a solid 95 to 99%. Okay, okay. So. I That makes you qualified. Cool. Just checking. All right, great. Hi, everyone. It's Anastasia, and I'm back with our cheesiest episode yet of That's Rad, a podcast presented by the Littleton Food Co-op. Yep, you heard me right. We're talking about all things cheese today. First things first, my deepest condolences to the lactose intolerant community. But you don't need any special enzymes to digest this episode. We're talking all things cheese. How it comes to be, how to find it at the co-op, and what to do with it when you take it home. Not only is cheese one of my favorite meals, yes, I said that, it's a meal, but I think it's also something that can seem intimidating and inaccessible if you don't have the tools to understand its whole world. Now, we obviously don't have time to go over everything cheese-related today, but I hope it's a start to helping people know more and feel more comfortable talking about it. Consider this your Beginner's Guide to Cheese and the Littleton Food Co-op, first edition. This episode literally wouldn't make any sense without my first guest, Katherine Cushing, manager of the Specialty Cheese Department. Katherine and I are going to talk about how she came to be our resident cheese lady, all about local cheese, and answer some questions. Then, surprise, surprise, Our product of the week is, you guessed it, a local cheese. And then we get to end with a very special surprise guest. So grab some mozzarella, Swiss, cheddar, Havarti, or however you want to party, and settle in for our first interview with Catherine. Here she is now. All right, everyone. So I'm now joined by Katherine Cushing, Specialty Cheese Department Manager at the Littleton Food Co-op. Hi, Katherine. Thanks Hello. for joining us today. Hi, Anastasia. Thank you for having me. Do you want to start by just telling us a little about yourself? Well, I've had many jobs in my life, and the last one I had before I came to the co-op was a teacher in the special needs department. My degree is in art education, but I, I ended up in special needs. Then a summer job came open at, in the deli, and so I got that job, and I was pretty sure I was not going back to school in the fall, and so the deli manager at the time said at the end of the summer, we'll keep you on and put you on full-time if you'll take over the cheese department. So I said, okay, and I've been there ever since. And how long ago was that? Uh, this is my... Uh, my ninth anniversary was this July, this summer, July. Congratulations. Thank you. So before you started, what, if anything, was like your experience with cheese? Um, what did you know about it? Like, were you a fanatic from birth or hate it? Or I'm really, I'm really curious about that. Well, my experience with cheese, well, I, I love cheese and I, I, I've been eating cheese since I was a very small child. My parents were, um... Brie and um, was you know, we always had brie. I don't know where they got it way back then, but they <laughs> did. And and lovely cheddars and but you know I knew what I liked for cheese, but I didn't know anything about it. And then when I did take over the cheese department, I also didn't know anything about it. it uh, you know, just I knew what I liked and where it came from and that kind of thing, but not you know not very little. Uh, and and so then I had to learn it cheese by cheese and that's that's how I got to the point that we're at today. A lot of reading, a lot of talking to people. One of our vendors, Provisions International, they're all foodies and they, they, they know so much about their product that they can answer just about anything. And they've, they've been, and without them, I don't have no idea where I would be with in cheese world now, but they've been excellent. So so did you really go like cheese by cheese, learn everything about one and then move to the next, learn everything about it? Or 
was it like a little of all of them and then a little more of all of them or it just seems like there's so many there are there are we have um i would say that the turnover of cheeses not including the retail friendly or the cryovac the stuff that's ready to come out of the box and go on the shelf we probably have i don't know 200 cheeses at least and and we rotate because the space is only so big and there are only so many shoppers up here where we live now it's grown a lot a lot of people and one of the reasons the co-op got started according to legend is that jeff wheeler was tired of driving to hanover to buy cheese so a lot of people, I mean, really, lots of people drove to Hanover to get their cheese, and now they don't have to, and people move in, and and we have shoppers that drive up from North Conway, we have shoppers that drive over from Berlin regularly to get cheese, because we're the only, we're the only place in town, so anyway, so when I took over, it was, uh, cheese would come in, and I'd have to, I'd, I'd, I'd Google it, I'd read about it in Steve Jenkins' Everything You Need to Know About Cheese, or whatever his book is, it's the Cheese Bible, and I'd call provisions. I mean, I would literally have to say to them, like when Telegio, I'd say, how do you cut Telegio? Because every cheese, I should say, you know, it has its own unique cut, wrap, label, how you present it, uh, what you say about it on the back. Um, so it was, I'm, I'm faster now than I was then. I, was like, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, what would take me, I don't know, let's just say an hour to do. Now I can do four cheeses in an hour easily. So, you know, you learn, and then you, then it sticks. You know, when you do papillon week after week after week, I said, oh yeah, I know this cheese. And that's how you learn. Uh, in the, and also, you can research anything and you can call anybody. You know, there's a lot of people out there that know way more than I do and they're very happy to help. So that's how we did it. And you mentioned a couple things in there. I heard cutting, wrapping, labeling, can you talk a little bit more about like what actually goes on maybe behind the scenes of the specialty cheese department to get the cheese to where it ends up on the shelf? Well, that's a good question. So let's just take a Monday. Monday, our largest shipment from Provisions comes in, and it's a it's a it's a chunk of cheese. It's a lot of cheese, and of course they're Literally. all they're all different. And so what we when we unpack that order, the soft fresher, younger cheeses go right into the refrigerator because you don't want them to warm up. And then if we need to cut parm that day, we pull it aside because par, uh, uh, we get a, a quarter wheel of Parmigiano-Reggiano from Italy because we can't handle or, or crack open a, a full wheel because it's massive. So that gets pulled aside because that Parmesan has to warm up before it's cut. Like good and warm, it can sit out all day long. It can sit out for eight hours and, and it's perfectly fine. But if you cut it when it's stone cold, it will shatter. Mm. And then if you're cutting, so that will sit out and, and, and just come up to room temperature. And it actually will never come up to room temperature because the inside is so cold and dense that, you know, it, you'll, you'll get there. So there's that. So, but then if you're cutting Delice de Bourgogne, which is a very soft cheese, it's like cheesecake cheese. You have everything ready to go. The, the, the cheese wire, your little packages that you put it in, because you can't wrap it because it's kind of like trying to wrap whipped cream. <laughs> so when everything's ready to go, you pull it out of the refrigerator, you open the package, and then you immediately cut it so that it doesn't. It has as little chance to warm up as possible because it it almost like melts. It doesn't really melt, but it just starts to you know collapse on you. And then there's everything in between. Like um, some cheeses warm up for an hour, some cheeses warm up for three, some many cheeses you you don't cut them until. I mean, you pull it out and cut it and immediately put it on the shelf because you don't want it to warm up at all because they just get soft, too soft. So there's that. Um, then when a new cheese comes in, I'll research it. Well, I already have, but I'll, then I will take a look at it. <laughs> and then I'll write a little blurb on the back. This cheese is uh, uh, new from, from Stony, and it's called Slovena, and what it's made of, and uh, and I'll take a taste so I can actually assess and be accurate about how we think it tastes and everyone has their own idea about taste but you know you kind of settle on what will what will make sense and everyone will get and and then we write that blurb and we figure out how much it's going to cost and then we then we put it on the shelf and we talk it up and you'll probably put it out on I'll probably call you and say please put this out there yeah. so everyone knows it's here <laughs> I mean it's it's so fast and then 
again, three, if, if we've had two to three hundred different cheeses here, that's a lot of cheese, and we can't have them out all the time. It's just too, it's too much cheese. There aren't enough people to buy it. Well, is there ever an, is there ever too much cheese? Oh yeah. You, okay. I mean, well, not well. We the mystical we, question has yeah. been answered. No, well, not not. I mean, we 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 swap it out. Like so, for instance, I'm bringing back Tuada next week, which I haven't had for three years, and so when I bring back Tuada, I'm going to have to say goodbye to something else for a while because mm -hmm. there's only so much room, and cheese only lasts so long and so you just can't have too much cheese sitting there because there there aren't enough people to buy it so is uh, it is it kind of like a process like the bachelor where like you have 200 something roses and then you give them to all of the cheeses that are going to stay and then the ones that have to leave you're like i'm sorry you're not america's next top model i just cross-referenced so many different things into one but i just kind of picture some big like dramatic ceremony after the store closes where you're like standing there and you're like weeping i'm so yeah <laughs> you're like i'm so sorry it's not you it's me well i have to tell you i've never seen the bachelor me neither i've heard about, <laughs> but i've heard about the roses yeah. so so yes it's kind of like that i mean well that's not yes sometimes yes sometimes sometimes we'll bring a cheese like i just placed yesterday the pre-order Specialty Hervé Mont French fine cheeses. It, it's a six-week pre-order. Now, this is probably the sixth, at least the sixth time I've placed this. And we've had a chance to weed out, um, like there's one cheese, if I've said it once, I've said it ten times, we'll never get this cheese again. And they're not inexpensive. They're expensive cheeses. And, you know, so it's, and they can get talked up as much as by anyone, and you think, oh yeah, and then you get it and say, this is not a great cheese. So I make a list, never bring this back, um, because it's a waste of time and money, and um, and sometimes it it ends up going to the pigs. Yeah. So so there's that. Um, and then sometimes, I mean, and then at holiday, of course, we overload, because we know that we're not going to sit on it, and we bring in, you know, very special holiday cheeses, and um, we, we just somehow make more room, and then holiday ends, and we go into ski season, and then we have that whole different, well, there's the winter cheeses and the summer cheeses, and then, you know, that's the raclette ch uh, uh, crowd, and the alpine cheese crowd, that's fondue, gratin, mm -hmm. um, uh, all of those, you know, melty, wonderful, um, you know, hideously fattening things that you eat in the winter. So... It, it, it rotates. It, it just, um, and then in the summer, of course, we have, we have a few goat cheeses that we bring in, lo domestic lo uh, goat cheeses, um, that we bring in year-round, but not a lot, because in the summer, the artisan cheesemakers, um, they make, like, for instance, Meadowstone, we start getting their cheese in usually April, and depending, it can go through October. Uh, rarely to the end of October because the goats have to ha have babies to continue to make milk and so they you know they, they pull the goats to breed them and then you just wait for the next you know the next season to come around and then we bring in mostly all local goat cheese because you know what it's the best and why not yeah. so so there's that so we thought a good way to figure out more about the specialty cheese department would be to ask our fellow co-workers and employees of the co-op what they wanted to know more about the specialty cheese department. So I did some investigating around, some asking, and I have just a quick list of questions here from employees that I'm gonna talk to Catherine about now. So first off, how is the cheese department organized? Good question. Well, any, let's hope you've all seen the cheese department. If you haven't, you can come in and take a look. That's the first step. Uh, all right. So the, 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 cool, the cooler case that faces the deli, those cheeses are artisan cheeses, imported cheeses, cheeses that we cut, cheeses that already come wrapped but are not what we call factory cheeses, even though there are some excellent, and we have excellent factory cheeses out there. For, for instance, um, at, at the end closest to the meat department, that's all soft cheeses. It's French soft cheeses, it's um, um, Bavarian soft cheeses, it's local soft, it's soft from, well, certainly Vermont, New York, and 
they're largely fresh or they're blooming rinds like brie or camembert but you know they're they're squishy cheeses um and then above those are like spreads and then you move on down towards the parking lot in the middle you have a, and then there's a row of blues the blues start out with local blues move into domestic blues and then move into foreign blues then uh there's a section in the middle which is kind of um it's alpine cheeses it's goudas or if we were in holland we would say howda um, it's uh, largely uh, Gruyere, Comte, um, those cheeses. And then towards the end of that case that faces the deli, the, 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 if you're looking at the case, it's the left, it's the imported uh, Italian and Spanish cheeses. And these are um, not all, but largely harder, semi-hard cheeses. Uh, um, there's Parmigiano-Reggiano, Grano, Locatelli, all of these Italian cheeses that everybody knows. Mostly, once you get beyond the soft cheeses that we talked about at the beginning, all those cheeses from the soft cheeses on, we, we cut and wrap. Um, uh, very few of um, anything but soft cheeses come wrapped for us, that, or cryovac, I should say. That's when you turn the corner to factory cheeses. Um, and then uh, it's not just, of course, a cheese department. It's really a special, it's, a, it's, it's, it's also partly specialty foods. So we have salamis, crackers, jams and jellies. The, the crackers and the jams and jellies are uh, in our section specifically because they pair very well with cheeses, all kinds of cheeses. I mean, there's other crackers and other jams in the store, but the, the ones that we select are because of, uh, for, for pairing with. And then we also do, like, I guess how you could say is the salamis, the the beans gigante, the marinade, it's for charcuterie boards, mm. um, you know, so everything that can go with cheese on a charcuterie board. That's why we have these these items. Um, then you turn, so there's that in the middle, and, you know, cheese, great cheese magazine culture, best reading um, if you want to read about food, cheese, in the world. Then you turn the corner and uh, fresh mozzarellas. This is the case that faces the parking lot. Fresh mozzarellas and then Bulgarian sheep feta and cheese curds that's uh, cheese curds and the feta that's largely all we package in that case everything else comes ready to go out retail friendly on the shelf take it out of the box put it on i would say that it is at least half local um uh, plymouth artisan from vermont grafton village from vermont neighborly farms from vermont um the cabot's that, on there well we the only cabot we have is because there's this whole Cabot case. Right. The only Cabot we have is Cabot cloth bound, which is a cheese that it, it comes in a wheel and we cut it and wrap it. That's a that's a totally different. It is from Cabot co-op creamery, but it's not like any other Cabot because it is a one herd cow's milk cheese from from Peachum, Vermont. It's made at Cabot Creamery, but the wheel and it's also bandaged and larded. But then the wheel goes to Jasper Hill Cellars. Then they own it and they age it in their caves. All the other cabots are from the cooperative and they're, they're factory cheeses, retail friendly cheeses, I should say factory cheeses, retail friendly cheeses. But then we, but then that's also we, where we have retail friendly cheeses from Australia, Ireland, Norway, Greece, England. So that's where, but they're all ready to go. And also all the cheese, the goat cheeses from Cabot Creamery are in that, I mean not Cabot, sorry. Um, Vermont creamer are in that case as well and then that's all our space that's it that's really good to know I mean because whenever I go over there I'm literally just like wandering around for like 20 minutes and let's be real like I'm still gonna do that but at least I have some more knowledge in my head now well you know we we forget because we do this I mean you know it's like it's like we know it like we know our name but that it 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 can be boggling to somebody who, um, and you know, we've tried signs, but signs um, just interfere even more. I mean, not you know, sign, lots of signage is just too is even more boggling. So you know, we're we're there to, to point you in the right direction. Uh, next question: How many cheeses do we get directly from the cheesemakers themselves? We get two cheeses from the farmer themselves. Tim and Meadowstone Farm and their crew, they drive it. Um, probably six or seven minutes away from here. They drive it over when we, we call them and they bring it right away. And then Roberta at Crooked Mile Farm in Waterford 
I call up Roberta and she, she says, I'll see you tomorrow. And, and she drives over with her cheese. Everyone else, it's brought in from, it's brought in by somebody else because they're too far away. So then what are the most local cheeses or the most local one? The, 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 the closest, most local cheese is Meadowstone Farm on Brick Road yeah. in Bethlehem. And then Roberta uh, Gillett at Crooked Mile Cheese in Waterford, Vermont. She's about 15 minutes away. Yeah, yeah. like 14 yeah. in that yeah. range. So they're the most local and they're all great. Next question. What's with the quote-unquote bark on some of the cheeses? Is it edible? Well, that's a very complicated question. Oh, okay. Uh, very complicated. Uh, uh, you, can, you can write a book about that. Okay, we'll do a whole other episode yeah. on the, I believe it's rind and not bark. Rind, it's rind. Okay. Yes, the rind. And, and yeah, there's, there, that's, a, that's a whole um, field of its, own, little, of its own in the little cheese world. Okay. Vegan cheese. <laughs> well, I suppose you can call anything cheese if you want to. Uh, I'm, uh, I can't say you can't call it cheese, uh, but it's a it's a spread, you know. It's uh, or it's a it's it's a, of course it's a substitute. Uh, and some people can you know if they can't have dairy, they can't have dairy, and they want cheese. But there are there are um, options, and generally, what I've just found is that. The less expensive, the the less real it is. <laughs> the more expensive. The, so I, I actually have some vegan cheese here. I'm not going to tell you who, who, who makes them, but I'll tell you what's in them. Okay, this is um, this is a Swiss style, and it is made with filtered water, coconut oil, potato starch, tapioca starch, vegan natural flavors. Tricalcium phosphate, sea salt, pea protein, isolate, xanthan gum, something I can't pronounce, lactic acid, fruit and or vegetable juice, yeast extract, and vegan enzyme. So when I see that, I think, well, I don't think that's really food. So then we, ha you could also purchase um, some, some cheese substitutes that are made with real food. So here's one, and it is made with Oops, I can't read that. It's made with cashews, uh, um, cashews, Himalayan pink sea salt, black peppercorns, nutritional yeast, probiotic blend, which is culture starter, like, well, I guess, like sourdough. And, uh, of course, it contains nuts. And then another one, very popular one, is made with organic cashews, filtered water, water organic coconut cream, sea salt, green onions, white pepper, and cultures. And that's it. So it's, you know, and I... There's such a range. Yeah, well, this is like, this is, I mean, also, it's, it's, you pay for it because it's not this, you know, this is like meals ready to eat in the army. Um, this is real. So, so yeah. that's a terrible thing. I, I know the meals ready to eat are probably very good and good for you. So, um, so those are your thoughts on vegan that's cheese. That's my thought on vegan, on, on substitute cheese. Substitute uh, cheese. Cheese substitute. There we go. <laughs> And then, um, this is a question from Jesse. Uh, I had to attribute to it to him because you'll see why when I say, quote, which cheese is best and why is it the top shelf aged Cabot cheddar? So in other words, what is your favorite cheese or maybe your top three or something? Oh, well, you know, it's like your children. You love them all the same. But you uh, secretly have a but favorite. But I do have a few favorites. <laughs> well, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll shout out a few cheeses. And I'm not going to do local cheeses because I don't want to, you know, defend uh, any of our three really local cheesemakers. One of my f favorite cheeses is Harbison. Harbison is from Jasper Hill. It's Jasper Hill Cellars in Green, uh, Greensboro, Vermont. It's an it's an award winning cheese many times over by the way, and it is a, it's a soft cheese with a bloomy rind on the top. It's wrapped in spruce bark, and the spruce bark is covered with blue green mold. It has to be there to make that cheese what it is, and you bring it up to room temperature and you don't cut the bark because it holds the cheese in, and then you just take a fine point and lift the bloomy rind top off and you spoon it out. And it's um, uh, if you if you're serving it to someone who's never had it before, don't tell them it's spruce bark because no one can place the flavor. They go, what is this? What is this? And then you say, it's spruce. And they say, oh, yeah. Uh, it's, that's a fabulous cheese. It's one of my favorites. 
another one of my favorites, which we won't bring in until Christmas, is Sottocinere, which is an Italian cheese, and it's covered with this, with a what looks like cement, but it isn't. Thank and it gosh. smells like burning rubber tires. <laughs> but when you taste it, there's nothing like it. This this crust that on it is made of herbs and spices, and it's and it's just pressed into the cheese. And um, we'll we'll when I bring it back in, we'll feature it and put it out there, and we'll do a little thing on Sotocinari. That's one of my favorites. And then I have to pick a third cheese. The third pick is Moritano al Tartufo, which is a sheep's milk cheese from Italy. So it comes in a pretty big wheel. Well, as big as a basketball, or a little smaller maybe. And it is black truffle infused, uh, and it's a semi semi hard cheese, and it's very it's potent. I mean, it's it's kind of stings your tongue when you eat it. It's it, it it's you can smell it through the package, um, and that's that is uh, um, will always be a favorite. So now shifting to those local cheeses, you have like a ton of varieties of local cheeses. How did you come to build such an extensive collection? And then how do you discover new local cheesemakers? Uh, that's a good question. Well, uh, when I started in the cheese department, it was, it, was, uh, it was a quarter of the size it is now. So you, there was only that much room. And so there were those, those local cheeses were, uh, when, I, when, when the store opened, Provisions International came up and assisted in setting up the cheese department because nobody, I mean, no one knew where to start and that's what they do. So, um, so it was small. So we, we had this little a small group of small cheeses, a small group of cheeses that were local. And then as I just kept demanding more and more room and, and, you know, eventually would get it, not, I should say demanding, begging, um, <laughs> for more room. We, and so then I would have to fill it and provisions would provide me with, and then people would call me up and, um, I don't remember if Meadowstone was in here with cheese before I started or not. They may have been, but uh, and then uh, custom, customers would say, "You should." I've been to a farmer's market. You should carry this cheese, and so I would search out the cheesemaker, or the cheesemaker would come to me and um, and say, "I make this cheese," and uh, I'd say, "Let's taste it," and um, it's, which is kind of tricky. I usually I say, "Leave it. I'll taste it, and I'll get back to you," because you know. And that, so they find us, we, and, and word of mouth, um, just how we, our latest local cheesemaker, what is that? Our, la our latest local cheesemaker, uh, one of our customers said, how come you, not, you don't have Roberta's cheese? So I said, all right, I'm calling her today. And I did, and, and, and now we have Crooked Mile cheese. And, but, and she's well known at the farmer's market, so people have mentioned her before. So that's how we, um, that's how we find them. Uh, they find us, we find them. So it's very community driven. Yeah, very much so. That's awesome. And you've said before that a lot of people comment on the price of local artisanal or just local cheese, but I think you've given a great explanation before of why it costs more than just grabbing the retail conventional bag of like shredded cheese or something or the cheese substitute. So can you tell us a little bit more about where that higher price comes from? We discussed this at Cricket Mile. I, I don't know any fabulously wealthy artisan cheese makers. It is it's a, a commitment and a passion that is you, you have to sustain it, or you'll, you will certainly fail. Um, because whether you're cows, sheep, or goats, those animals have to be milked twice a day, early in the morning and in the early evening, I think. Yeah, and then that milk, if you don't you, if you don't use it to make cheeses, you, you'll, you'll end up throwing it away. It has to be thrown away. So there you are, milking your animals morning and night, seven days a week, which means you're not going to take a week's vacation. Then the work involved in making the cheese is, you, you know, you start and you go through this process and, and, and it, it, you know, it's, a, it's not a complicated process, but it's got many steps and they have to be followed religiously. And then, when you're all done doing that, before you milk again in the evening, you have to wash. Everything has to be s s cleaned and sterile. That's I, I, someone told me once that 80% of cheesemaking is washing, is wow. cleaning up. It's and then when you think that no one else can do this job, you can you you have you. It's only you or your, you and your 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 help or you and your, you know if you've got partners whatever. You can you can't get away from it, as we say. It's the baby that never grows up. You 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 can't get away. So, 
I've heard of cheese makers that bring in apprentices, and usually they say by the time the apprentice has got it all under their belt and you're ready to you know go on a cruise or something, that apprentice is ready to do their own thing and they leave you. This happens all the time, and then you throw in you know a, a, something goes wrong with your herd. That's expensive. Uh, cheese making equipment is terribly expensive. Just the care of the animals, and so they have to make a living to make a living to. So they can make cheese and take good care of their animals. So that's why it's expensive. Yeah, and that seems totally justified. Oh, absolutely. So speaking of cheese pricing, though, can you talk a little bit about the Cave to Co-op program we're a part of? Yes. Cave to Co-op, all, a number of co-ops, local, you know, surrounding co-ops belong to it. And I believe Cape Cod was started by Provisions International, but I'm not positive. But they do it; they handle it. It's it's there. They, they take care of everything. Uh, some co-op group yeah, is involved other, in this. Yeah, the um, other the other participating co-ops are through the Neighboring Food Co-op Association, which is kind of like the Northeast um, affiliation or co-op of co-ops. Yeah. Um, so they run it along with Provisions Pro- International. Yeah. Right. So what they do is they work with local Vermont cheesemakers and they this is set up a year and a year plus I think in advance so for instance the the cheese um, last month's was Verano from David Major from Vermont Shepherd and it, it was it's a cheese that they decided over a year ago that would be the cave to co-op for this year because they have to make enough cheese it's an aged cheese they have to make enough to make it available to all the co-ops who want to feature it that month. Yeah. And we and we try to always feature the Cave to Co-op. And so the price is determined. We have nothing to do with the price, what we pay for it or what we sell it for. We just say, yes, we want to belong to this program. We will do whatever you tell us. And so we, the cheese, we purchase the cheese at a lesser price than we would ordinarily. But we sell it for a considerably lesser price than we would ordinarily. We don't, we, we make very little money on, on the, the Cape to Co-op cheese of the month, which is fine because really it's to promote a local cheese maker. Um, and it, it, pe- people are very uh, happy to be chosen to be, because only 12 months, you know, yeah. 12 cheeses that And it's year. also a good opportunity for people looking to kind of get into the specialty cheese world or to try a new cheese to try it because it's at such a lower price exactly if you love it enough when it goes when it's not cave to co-op you can purchase it for a, a bit yeah. more but so it, it it's really is to introduce um different cheeses to to different uh, customers that have never tried it before it's also a boost for the cheese maker cheese maker in a, in a you know financially and promotion promotion yeah so every once in a while the arrangements are made a year in advance and something goes awry and it has happened before, yeah. Uh, and there is not, they, they, have to, they have to change it out because there's not enough, um, they have not made enough or something has gone terribly wrong with the, with the, with the cheese making process oh, no. itself at that wrong moment. And, but it, that's rare. Usually it's, you know, you, you know what you're going to get and we get it. So that's the, that's the um, Cape to Co-op program. That's great to hear. So then you're usually either behind the department and the little, or I should say in it, in it really, working on those behind the scenes stuff we talked about, or restocking or anything like that. So if you're there and someone comes up and they really have no idea what they're doing, what kind of questions can people ask you? Have people asked you in the past? Like, how can people use you as a resource or anyone else working in the department? Well, one bit of advice I give to the to people buying cheese is if you love this cheese, take a picture of it with your phone because they'll come back a month later and say, we got a cheese here, and it, and it was round, and it was wrapped up. And, and it smelled like cheese, and it was, and it was yellow. And it was, and it was good, and, <laughs> and do you have any more of that? And so take a picture with your phone, first of all. Uh, a lot of questions like, uh, what's your, we, we want a really the sharpest cheddar. What's your sharpest cheddar? Which is a is an impossible, well, it's not impossible, there's mild cheddar and, you know, sharp cheddar and really sharp cheddar, but sharp doesn't, is different to a lot of people, and, you know, it's, it's a flavor profile, really, that they're looking for, that, you know, that's, that's, that's assertive and has perhaps a bit of a bite and um, that lingers, and so pointing people to the right 
very sharp cheddar is can be tricky. Um, we get questions. People come in. They want. They say, "I need some Swiss cheese." That's a good one. Well, in America we have Swiss cheese. In Switzerland they have four hundred Alpine cheeses. They have cheese. Yeah, they have cheese. <laughs> and and it's not just Switzerland. It's the Al it's the Alps. Whether it's you know uh, Italy or France or Germany or Bavaria or Hungary. I mean Hungary, Austria. Um, there are Alpine cheeses and. They're all sort of, well, not all, but they're kind of Swiss-like, what we think of as Swiss. So half the time, people really want American Swiss cheese from the deli, which is where I send them. Or they're doing a fondue or a quiche or a gratin or something like that. And then I say, well, you want an Alpine cheese. Uh, and then we have to point, then we have to make the distinction between like seven or eight Alpine cheeses mm. or Alpine-style cheeses, which are cheeses that aren't from the Alps, but are... But for instance, Alpha Tolman from Jasper Hill Cellars, Robinson Family Swiss from Robinson Family Farm in Hardwick, Massachusetts, Mount Mansfield. There's a lot of cheesemakers in Vermont that make Alpine style cheeses, which means they're quite similar, mm. um, but they're different because of the, they're they're different because of different herd, different terroir, different climate, different grasses, different soil, different uh, uh, con totally different conditions. So they're Alpine style, and of course. They're not from the Alps, so there's that's that's a question that we get a lot. And <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, and then of course they want to. Someone will want to put together. They're having a, a, an event, a soiree, a party. They want to put together a cheese uh, plate. We do do cheese platters. We do specialty cheese platters. Um, uh, and we would start. Do you want all local, or do you want a mix, or do you want all far? You know that's. But helping someone put their own together, mm -hmm. and that is you know. Here's a, a a nice across the board selection. You've got a blue, you've got a soft, you've got a goat, you've got a sheep, you've got a cow, you've got a harder harder cheese, you've got a, a semi hard, semi soft, and what crackers to go with it. So we we get there's a there's a lot of that. So I'm kind of getting the sense that like it's great if you know what you're looking for, and if you don't, be prepared to answer questions that will help you get there. Absolutely. Perfect. Oh, perfect. Yes, perfect. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time, and thanks for teaching us really so much more than I even knew was possible about the world of the specialty cheese department. You're welcome. And you know, it's just a, that's just a smattering. There are thousands of cheeses we'll never taste. You, yeah. there. Are, if you go, you know, you go, I don't know, just say go to Europe, and or South America, or and you know, there are cheeses that are you know just phenomenal cheeses that never leave the village. Uh, you know, cheeses you'll never, ever get to taste unless you go there. That's so sad. I can't think I know. about that. I know. Well, I think that also shows that you just need to start your own branch off podcast oh. just about cheese. Well, uh, Episode one. The rind. In my spare time. In I'll spare think about time. it. In my spare time, I'll think about it. Like I said, it just wouldn't be right if this episode's product of the week wasn't a local cheese. Taking everything from my interview with Catherine, and from my upcoming interview you'll hear in a minute, it just felt right to feature a cheese with a story. This week's product of the week is the maple smoked cheddar from Grafton Village Cheese, found in the, you guessed it, specialty cheese department. This cheddar is smoked for up to four hours, and you can really taste the hard work put into making it. Well, not like not like the gross, like the sweat part of like the hard work, more just the fact that you can taste the aroma of smoked ham and even a late night campfire, if you can picture that in a cheese. Grafton Village has been a staple out of Brattleboro, Vermont since 1892. More recently, it has become part of the Wyndham Foundation of Grafton, Vermont. Their mission is to preserve and enhance the social, economic, and cultural vitality of Vermont's small towns. What this means for you is that a Grafton Village cheese company purchase is good for your appetite and your conscience. For me, this cheddar in particular brings back memories of my birthday. I put together a birthday cheese board of local offerings, and it was such a bright spot in the otherwise dull, pandemic-filled winter. 
I think cheese has that brightening power for a lot of people. But I'll let my next guest tell you more about how cheese and stories definitely pair well together. Okay, I am so excited right now. Everyone, I really need you to give the warmest of welcomes to my friend Madeline. Hi, Madeline. Hey, Anna. Madeline's my friend, and she's here on the podcast today. And this isn't one of those things where, like, celebrities are like, oh, my dear friend so-and-so, even though they've never met. Like, Madeline's actually my friend. (laughs) Even though we were actually, like, both really intimidated of each other when we first met. (laughs) But that's on being strong, powerful women. Uh, So I've invited Madeline on today. Not just so I could get to talk to her for work, but she has a really unique interest that really lended itself perfectly to this episode. Madeline is the person I know who knows the most about cheese boards. Even approaching the idea of making a cheese board or cheese boarding, if you will, is something else that makes me think how cheese can be such an intimidating topic which is why I'm so happy Madeline is here to hopefully demystify a little bit. So I guess starting right at the beginning, Madeline, how did your love affair with cheese begin? You know, I mean, I think I've always loved cheese, right? I've been eating a lot of cheese since I was a little kid. I come from a family that really values cheese, um, and it sounds kind of silly, but I feel like uh, my dad was always making cheese boards when I was a kid, very basic ones, just cheese and fruit and crackers but it's kind of how I've eaten a lot of foods in my life in that sort of board form and then when I was in my first year of college I took a course on cheese making this intensive course where I actually started to supplement my enjoyment of all things dairy with some level of knowledge that was beyond just what I kind of put together on my own. That's really cool I mean I knew those classes existed, but I guess I didn't know it was something that real people did <laughs> and not just, like, couples on weird sitcom shows. <laughs> um, so what percent of your blood would you say is dairy products at this time? Yeah, I'm going to say on any given day, it ranges from a solid 95 to 99%. Okay, okay. So. I That makes you qualified. Cool. Just checking. All right, great. Do you remember when you made your first cheese board? I mean, I think it depends on how we want to define a cheese board. You know, I can remember being as young as five or six years old and putting cheddar cheese on a Triscuit and maybe calling that a cheese board if you kind of put it in that board form. <laughs> the Is first the time I made the board? <laughs> you know, I think that's the, the question that we'll, we'll leave open for interpretation. I think, you know, um, yeah. I think... I think a cheese board can be just a cracker and cheese if you really want it to be. The first time I remember really making, like, a massive cheese board as a true undertaking was really only three or four years ago uh, for a, a family Christmas party. Uh, my, my family and I decided we were going to eat just a cheese board for this one event, and that was the first time I made, like, a cheese board in name, but... I've definitely been making some form of cheese board and eating food, various foods, in board form since as long as I can remember. I think it's the best way to eat food. Mm, mm, Agree. But I think you brought up, like, the really important point of just talking about what is a cheese board. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I guess if you could also get into, like, why would you make one? Yeah, of course. Um, So a cheese board, I mean, it is most technical definition is a arrangement of cheeses and occasionally, you know, some fruits or or other sort of accompaniments. It largely gets lumped in as well with a charcuterie board, which similar but different, that technically is a a collection of various meats um, and and meat spreads, pâtés, that sort of thing. Um, So I, I think there are technical kind of book definitions of what both of those are and are not. That said, I kind of approach cheese boards as some sort of board or plate or vessel of cheeses and things that I think go well with cheese. Um, so meats and meats and fruits and nuts and, and all sorts of different things. 
But, I mean, I think you can make them for any reason. I've had these really formal cheese boards um, for the holidays, as I've mentioned. I've had cheese boards on dates. I've had cheese boards just sitting at home watching television. I think I think you can make them for any, um, really any sort of event or any setting. I think that a lot of people don't because they can be kind of intimidating. Uh, and they also just aren't really branded as a, an everyday sort of snack. But I've, I've become a big fan of just always having various uh, cheeses and various cheese accompaniments uh, always, always available in my home. So I'm all about a nice afternoon casual cheese board, absolutely. I think that's so true. I think their brand was really such an upscale, maybe once a year thing. But why would you want to limit your cheese boarding to just once a year and to just those holiday events? So I'm glad you said the same thing. Um, I think it's really interesting, too, now during COVID where people aren't having parties or gatherings, I hope. Um, So (laughs) they might have completely lost their sense of purpose with a cheese board, purpose of a cheese board, I should say. So they they haven't been thinking about them, but now hopefully we can talk to people about how to make them an everyday necessity in your household. So jumping into that, let's kind of like break down the elements of a cheese board. Um, Yeah. So first, the mixing of the cheeses. I have this idea in my mind, and maybe this isn't even true, that a cheese board has multiple types of cheese on it. So how do you go about figuring out what to put on your board? Yeah, um, I mean, so a cheese board typically does, you're right, have have, uh, multiple cheeses on it. I think you technically could have a board that was one cheese and various other things um, if you wanted to. I also once made a board that was just a bunch of different types of brie or brie-style cheeses, so kind of different cheeses, kind of not. But uh, the general rule of thumb is you really just want a variety of of textures of cheeses. So you have, like, the soft cheeses, something in the goat cheese family, um, something like brie. Um, Then you have, like, firmer cheeses, gouda, cheddar fall into that family. Uh, you have blue cheeses, which are, you know, very different in, in flavor profile than, than say, like a manchego or an iberico cheese. So really what I'm looking for, um, and I think this is, this is typically the, the sort of broader rule of thumb, not just my own thoughts by any means, is just looking for that variety of texture, of taste, of intensity, and then sometimes also trying to play on some sort of theme. So every so often I'll make an Italian-style cheese board while focused only or, or at least primarily on Italian cheeses and Italian um, other other pieces, like a, adding in Italian-style breads or Italian meats. So I think it can have a theme or not, but either way, you really just want to be focused on variety because that's going to make it a much more enjoyable experience and make every bite a little bit different, which personally, that's my favorite part of eating a cheese board is every bite being a little bit different. Mm, and I think also it means if it does happen to be a multi-person cheese board that you're going to have more luck pleasing everyone by having a variety rather than only having, I don't know, goat cheese and then that, like, half of your party hates goat cheese, which, like, I mean, how could you hate goat cheese? But, <laughs> um, yeah, that on that point, too. So I think... In talking about, you mentioned theme, it would be great to move into, um, <laughs> I I sent my notes to Madeline. And I was like, anything else you want to add? And she's like, I really think we need to talk about the story you're trying to tell with your cheese board. Um, so I, I want to hear what you have to say about that. Is it different than your theme or is it the, or is it, is that what you mean? No, I mean, I think it's a little different. Um, I I believe that food is storytelling very much so. I mean, I believe most things are storytelling. Anna can tell you that. You know me well. I I, I definitely think that storytelling is how I approach life. Um, and for me, a lot of foods have almost like a sentimental value um, of memories I associate with them. Um, and I, I think I bring that into my cheese board space. 
for example, there's this one cheese, uh, a Dauphin Wah, which is a French sort of triple cream style brie. Delicious, first of all, if you've never had it. I would highly recommend that cheese. Um, and while it's just a really tasty cheese and it's really exciting, I have a really good memory of the first time I had that cheese was hanging out with my best friend who I've been friends with uh, since high school and, and we're still very close friends. And that cheese always reminds me of him. And I think for me personally, it's really important and, and really exciting to be able to bring in different parts of my life into a cheese board. So um, whether it's bringing, you know, memories of different people or I love to work with Italian cheeses because I feel close to my Italian side of my family. Um, I think there's lots of stories that we can tell with food and it's just exciting. Even if the people eating the board don't necessarily know you know, what the story driving some of those components are. I think it, it helps me engage more, and it's just it's just kind of fun. I love bringing stories into food. That was honestly so beautiful. Um, <laughs> and it also gave me a great idea. Um, if anyone out there listening, you know, I don't know, has a little thing for me, is in love with me, anywhere on that spectrum, um, I would definitely love you back if you made me a cheese board and then assigned some sort of meaning or part of me to each cheese and explained it to me. Um, I'm also willing to sell this idea off to be a Hallmark movie. So, yeah. But I, I, I like how you said um, even if your guests or the people enjoying it alongside of you don't understand it, um, it still has value to you, and that is still a reason to do it. Absolutely. So then if we're not going just the straight cheese route, there are other things on the board. Let's talk about what are those other things, how do you decide what to do with them, um, does it have to do anything with the specific cheeses on the plate, or do you always put the same accompaniment on it? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. It really, for me, depends on, on who I'm making this board for and kind of why. So I think about this in terms of sometimes I'm making a board that's for friends that I know are picky people, and I just sort of accept that, and I put the things that I know they'd like. Uh, sometimes I'm putting together a board that's just things I want to eat that I find uh, kind of comforting. But the general rule of thumb is, is, again, just looking for that that balance. So, you know, I like to have different levels of spice, different types of textures, and that applies not just to the cheeses, but to everything you're putting on that board. Um, I also like to think about kind of giving everything on the board at least one partner, essentially. So, um, you know, a fruit that goes well with a certain cheese or having the right piece of bread, um, different meats that are that uh, complement different cheeses and and largely that's going to have to do with where those things are from is is typically a good way to go about it if you're sort of new to the world of of merging cheese board flavors finding uh meats and cheeses uh, that are from the same parts of the world can be really a a great way to go about that but again it's really just about uh balancing out your flavors and having enough on there that every bite can be a little bit different Mm, i like that um, can you talk about what are some things other than cheese that you've put on a cheese board in the past? I love mustard on cheese boards. So that's, it's a, like that's one straight on there or like is it in a cup? Is it squirted all over it? I'm I'm in- intrigued. Yeah, well, that depends on like the kind of the construction of the cheese board. So I have I have some boards where I'll put everything more separated. I'll put, you know, mustard into a little a little bowl or something like that. I have some boards where I am taking a big scoop of nice whole grain mustard and just plopping that right down on the board. I personally, when I approach my cheese boards, I like to have everything kind of touching and overlapping. And so I will just throw mustard right down, especially, um, especially if it's kind of next to the, the cheeses or meats that it, it goes best with. I wouldn't necessarily just squirt mustard down and then put a set of blueberries or something right next to it because that's an accident waiting to happen. But <laughs> I think as long as yeah, it's it's happened, it's not great. But as long as you're really mindful of 
kind of what sort of flavor combination you're trying to build, I think you can you can really be creative and honestly a little bit abstract and messy about how you're putting together your board. I think there's one of the most beautiful parts about making a cheese board is once you have all the pieces, you've gone to the store, you've got all the the cheeses and the meats and the fruits and the nuts and the, you know, the pieces of bread or, or whatever it is, you just standing there and putting things together, um, folding up, you know, your pieces of salami just so and wrapping them around the pieces of bread or the bowl of olives. I love kind of almost the trial and error of putting together a board. And honestly, I will spend an hour or two putting together a board if it's if it's for an event because I just think it's so fun. Um, I'll weave herbs in between the pieces of cheese, and you can really get uh, creative, and it's really exciting. So do you have any tips or tricks for the general public to make it an aesthetic cheese board? Because we know, obviously, um, you didn't make a cheese board unless you posted it on Instagram, and no one's going to like it if it doesn't look cute. So how do you make it look good and not just a pile of cheese? Absolutely true. Uh, Instagrammer, it didn't happen. But I think it's the same rule of thumb about, you know, when you're eating the cheese board, you want to have variation of taste and texture. When you're thinking about the aesthetic side, you want variation of color and shape. Um, So I'm thinking I love to put fruits and berries on my board. So if I'm adding blueberries, I might add uh, raspberries as well. That way, you know, rather than doing blueberries and blackberries, for example, that in a photo, kind of just look the same you know and one of the limitations of cheese um i think as far as an aesthetic side can be that most cheese is similar in color uh and so is most bread and actually so are the insides of a lot of fruits like apples or pears so i think really uh going out of your way to be mindful of uh you know sort of lighter cheeses you know goat cheese you get that beautiful stark white versus a blue cheese um obviously has a much different color profile And then another thing is thinking about little kind of pops of color you can add. So I love uh, basil leaves. I think those can be a great addition to a board. Mustard, again, I mean, I'm a a big mustard fan, and you've got that bright yellow that's, you know, even though it's in the same family as sort of the yellow of cheeses, you know, it can be a lot brighter um, and a more interesting color. You also have a different sort of texture. It's kind of shiny, or if you do coarse mustard, you see all the, all the grains. And I think as much as you can, just thinking about what colors are next to each other is huge. And then again, when you go to eat that board, you're going to end up with that diversity of of flavors and and different flavor combinations just based on what's sitting next to one another. So definitely just thinking about variation, how things can be different um, and how every bite can be a little bit different. And I'm sure too, it's a balance between the aesthetic and like what you're actually going to eat because sure raspberries and blueberries look totally different but if you don't like blueberries then like I mean I'm one for doing it for the aesthetic um but you might not want to put a bunch on there and then end up wasting it yeah Um, I mean I think everyone has their priorities right I have definitely (laughs) made some cheese boards with some things on them that I I don't always love but I'm actually not a big fan of berries in general, um, is kind of my controversial take. I'm not a big fan of blueberries, but I love the way uh, just a heaping pile of blueberries looks on a board. So uh, I will admit that I have in the past made a beautiful board, taken a picture of it, then taken off the blueberries and just put them back in my fridge and then eaten the board without them. Uh, so Maybe it's a little bit deceptive, but sometimes you got to go for the aesthetic and then be realistic about what you will and won't eat. As long as you're not actually creating a bunch of food waste, I think you're in the clear. Definitely don't buy blueberries if no one in your home is going to eat them. But I, I think you can have a little fun with it. Thank you so much for your confessional. Um, I'm also now just thinking, it's a long story, guys, but basically one day I ended up only packing myself a microwavable packet of rice for lunch at work. And I immediately texted Madeline because she was the one I thought of. I was like, how do I make this better? And she was like, add mustard. (laughs) And and really that I'm finding out now that that's just a theme, a mantra, if you will, 
it seems, in your life. When in doubt, add mustard. Yeah, you know what? Actually, the other day, uh, a friend texted me, and they were making mac and cheese. And uh, we're trying to figure out how to spice up some boxed mac and cheese, and I also said add mustard to that. So Makes sense, actually. Yeah. Now, something I've been curious about this whole time that mm-hmm. is a real integral part of cheese boarding, as it's in the name, the board itself, does it matter? I say yes. Yeah. Talk about... Talk about the board itself and, like, size, uh, texture, composition. Well, so the first thing I'll say as sort of a disclaimer is don't – if you don't have a board that you think is the right board, don't let that be a barrier to making a cheese board because I've had beautiful compilations of cheese that are just on a sort of standard dinner plate, and they've been just as amazing. But – I personally am a big fan of boards. I uh, once made a cutting board when I was in, I think, the eighth grade, and I was just very proud of the colors of wood that I picked. And I think there's something just in my, it probably in my DNA about it because I have a, a whole family that's sort of obsessed with, with boards and plates. That said, the real importance of the board itself, the main piece is the size and the shape. The actual look of it, becomes more or less important depending on what type of cheese board you want to put together. And by that, I mean, I tend to make these really sort of abundant looking cheese boards where everything is touching and overlapping. And honestly, you don't really see much of the board at all, except for maybe around the edges. So if you're going for that look, it it doesn't really matter what's under there. That said, I know some people like more of the sparse look where you have a piece of cheese sort of on its own, and then you've got a little pile of prosciutto or the like um, kind of over here, and you've got some some various fruits and, and nuts all throughout. So you might care more if you have these holes and you can see the board. Um, but the big thing is uh, as long as you kind of can gauge what a surfing size looks like, and really that depends on whether or not this is – whether this is a board for just an appetizer or you're eating, you know, a cheese board at your dinner, which I have done many a time, especially uh, during my life in quarantine, then I think you're just really going to look for uh, how much cheese do you need for, to feed the number of, of mouths that you're trying to feed, and then what does that look like um, on a board. And honestly, I don't have a great, uh, a great tip for figuring out exactly how much a serving size is, because I am always, but I'm always a big believer in just having extra and then putting it away. And then after I've made a cheese board, I always have, I tend to have leftovers that I can use for many subsequent cheese boards in the in the days to follow. Mm, but I think it's a good point to mention that you mentioned depending on who's coming. You know, like mm-hmm. a Madeline serving size isn't going to be the same as an Anna serving size or a one of our parents serving size. Things like that. exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay, so final question, and I actually mm-hmm. asked Madeline this a while ago, but I want to bring it back up to see if she sticks with her original answer now that she's um, on the spot. So if I was to just put, like, piles of different types of bagged shredded cheese on a board and call it a cheese board, like, how much of a crime would that be? Well, technically, it's cheese on a board, right? You know, and technically, some of the some of the combinations I make aren't necessarily cheese boards because I'm I'm muddying them up with various meats and and other other pieces. I I think my problem with the shredded cheese is that it's not very easy to to eat and put together because. It's just these shreds. So I that's really my hesitation to call that a cheese board is that it, you know, it, the uh, I guess the arrangement, it gets a little bit lost for me. That said, I've never tried it. And I, I would be open in, in this, maybe in post-COVID times, Anna, if you want to make me a quote-unquote cheese board with shredded cheese in big piles, I will try it and give you a more definitive answer. But I, I do hesitate at this point. I, I do I do hesitate if I'm being honest, but prove me wrong. 
<laughs> I was going to say, Madeline, I think you're just not trying hard enough to eat the shredded cheese. Uh, but thank you so much for coming on anyways. Yeah, thanks, Avenue. This is great. we've officially completed another episode of That's Rad. Not to sound cheesy, but I think this episode was pretty great. I want to give another thanks to Catherine, my friend Madeline, and all of our local cheesemakers, just in case so they didn't know how much we appreciate them. You know, we still Swiss you all were here because we're so fondue of you. But I'm glad we have this platform to still be able to connect with you all. Now, you should connect with us. Let us know your thoughts on That's Rad so far by reaching out to us on Facebook, Littleton Food Cooperative, Instagram, at Littleton underscore co-op, or shoot us an email to marketing at littletoncoop.org. Okay, seriously, I don't want to add any more because nothing can get feta than this. I hope you all have a Gouda day. Go eat some cheese, sleep, and as always, be rad. Rad is a production of the Littleton Food Co-op. Anastasia Marr directs and hosts. Jesse Smith and Annie Stewart produce. Becky Colpitz provides unrelenting positivity and moral support. The Littleton Food Co-op is Littleton, New Hampshire's community-owned grocery store. We put our money where your mouth wants to be. Local farms, of course. No membership is required to shop here. Come check us out sometime just off exit 41 at 43 Bethlehem Road in Littleton. Or if you're online, check us out at littletoncoop.com.